Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate these rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, go to masterleadership.org forward slash podcast. That's masterleadership.org forward slash podcast for more information. Today we are speaking with Dr. Tracy A. Benson, a lifelong educator committed to improving lifetime outcomes for historically marginalized communities of color. Tracy has dedicated his career to uncovering and addressing vestiges of structural racism in the K-12 school systems. Dr. Benson firmly believes that student achievement, teacher efficacy, and school success is contingent upon high-quality, equity-focused schools and district leaders. Tracy is an assistant professor of educational leadership at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. He received his doctorate in educational leadership from Harvard Graduate School of Education and Masters of School Administration from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has served as a principal coach, high school principal, middle school vice principal, district trainer, and elementary school teacher. Welcome, Dr. Tracy Benson. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Lily. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready and I'm excited. Yes, you are. (laughs) So tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. Well, I started teaching back in 2001 in Houston, Texas. I was a Teach for America Corps member. And I chose to join Teach for America because my mother and father were both educators. My father was a special ed teacher. My mother was and still is a counselor in Milwaukee Public Schools. And so I knew I wanted to be in education. While my undergrad was in sociology, I did want to join teaching through the alternative pathway. And that's where TFA came in. And so I taught in Houston for two years. Um, and my wife and I met there. So I moved around a bit where I stayed in education where I ultimately went back for my master's in 2006 at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because I was teaching quite a bit and I wanted to explore leadership. So after I got my master's, I then got my first AP position in a small place called Pittsfield, Massachusetts Mm -hmm. in 2008. So that was two years later after I got my master's. And so I spent five years, two years as an AP at the middle school, then three years as a principal of Pittsfield High School. And then I went back because I was interested more in learning about the vestiges of racism and racial bias in schools. So I went back for my doctorate at Harvard, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I studied policy at the Kennedy School and read a lot more about the vestiges of racism. And so then I wanted to write more and learn more, speak more, advocate more for addressing racism in education. I chose to join the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte is where I am now. And my 
book just came out, and it's called Unconscious Bias in Schools, A Developmental Approach to Exploring Race and Racism. Really important work. Now, where could our listeners get your book? My book is available at several places. Uh, first, Amazon, of course. You can type in Tracy Benson, Racism, it'll pop right up. But you can also get it from the publisher, Harvard Education Press. And so HEPG, Tracy Benson, you can Google search that and it'll pop up and you can get it directly from the press. And I know you also have a TED Talk. I do. On YouTube, it's available. It's a TEDx Talk from UNC Charlotte. It's called The Binary Code of Racism. It's a 15-minute listen, but it's available on YouTube. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, I want to explore this leadership. When you started teaching in schools, how did leadership occur to you and what has shifted since then? In schools, of course, you know, anyone who's been in a position of leadership knows that it's a tremendously humbling experience when you lead adults, especially a large group of adults, because coming from the classroom, you know, I was an elementary school teacher. I love fourth graders so much. They're at a developmental age where they're not quite young enough to be baby, but they're not quite old enough to not want adult sort of approval. And so I became quite good at being a classroom teacher, but the skill set of leading a group of adults is similar in some ways, but a lot different in other ways in terms of adults have their own perspectives, their own opinions, and they're not afraid to tell you about yourself. Right, and, and us adults can become fourth graders if pushed. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And so, you know, where I was as a new leader, I mean, it's humbling, it's scary. You know, in my early 30s when I became a principal, and I led a lot of teachers that were older than me, and so I don't think I had, at the time, the mindset that I could be a public learner. I didn't have to have all the answers. Of course, you learn this over time. You know, I was in the principal chair for three years. But um, what I learned over that time is more about myself and my preferences and how I need to meet adults where they are rather than where I think they should be. Right. And you learn it over time, but you have to be intentional about it because I know a lot of people that are in leadership positions and over time haven't really grown. Right. And right now I teach in the Master's of School Administration program here at UNCC. And what I espouse through my classes, you know, I teach school law courses, but at the same time, I really stress adult learning and humility and reflection on the adaptive parts of learning how to be a leader. What I always tell my students that is that we're never ready. You are never fully formed as a leader before you go in. And so you have to be open and humble enough to realize that you're going to get it wrong nine times out of 10. But in order to get it right that 10th time, you have to learn from the nine times you didn't do it as well. Right. This is tough. How do you teach humility? It's tough. It, it, oh my gosh, it's tough. <laughs> but what I do in my courses, I set up a very intentional collaborative structure where I provide very little guidance in terms of you need to do these specific assignments and then you turn it in and I tell you with an A that you're smart. I don't do any of that. I have it more of an open formation of how they want to approach the class. And then we practice receiving feedback from our peers. So I receive feedback from them frequently. They receive feedback from one another. And part of the process of separating yourself as a person from yourself as a leader that needs to grow is being able to take feedback in a way that you're always thankful and grateful for it, no matter how critical. And then when you do receive it back, you know, I've expressed to my students that you have to see the feedback as you as a leader. Us as a leader, we can always grow, change, and develop and separate that from us as a person so it doesn't affect our self-esteem. You know, I love how you exemplify that by asking them for feedback first. That's right. important. Yeah. yeah, they give it to me. They, and I, you know, and then <laughs> they let I, you have I, it. And not to say that it doesn't still strike a chord emotionally. Of course mm -hmm. it does every time it happens. But then I play back to them my self-talk in my mind. 
say, this is what I thought when I got it, you know, and then I'd say to myself, I'm grateful for your feedback. It's critical. And thank you for giving this to me. It helps me be a better leader. So I try to model that and model my negative self-talk when I receive critical feedback to sort of create a model for them that yes, it still may strike a chord. At the same time, you always need to learn from any feedback you get when you're in a position of leadership. You know, I've grown to understand that humility and wisdom are very interconnected. Do you feel that as you grow in your humility, your wisdom is also elevated? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be self-reflective with that, right? Because I find that it's hard to put myself back into the mindset of the students that I teach right now. These people are often teachers who haven't been into the seat of leadership. And I really want to be able to tap back into that mindset, but I know I can't. So I know I've grown. I can't go back to, you know, once you see, you can't unsee. But I do believe the more I learn about leadership and the more that I am intentional about when I have opportunities to lean into leadership, I'm able to have much more humility and be an open and public learner rather than, you know, having to feel like I have all the answers. But yeah, so I think with wisdom comes greater propensity for humility. And vice versa. So I really appreciate that. Now, which quotes speak to your life and why? Oh, this is a quote that I live by. It's not cliche in its sense of, you know, when you're living it in terms of the way in which you lead. And so Mahatma Gandhi, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. That's my favorite. Yeah. And, you know, it's catchy. People like to use it. And also at the same time, when you begin to really internalize it and live it, I'm a staunch advocate for racial justice. Racial justice in every sense of the word, whether it's in schools, whether it's through my writing, whether it's through places that I speak, whether it's through my research. I want to be that change because I recognize in our system of education, there's deep entrenched vestiges of racism in our school system that we need to address. And it's very tough to address it in a way that is not threatening, that's very comfortable. It's a very uncomfortable topic to address, but it has to be done because if it's not me, then who? Mm-hmm. And so through my research agenda, the way I teach my courses, even though I don't teach classes specifically on racism, I teach policy and law, but through that, we explore social justice and racial equity. The places that I speak and the intentionality about what I publish and when I publish is all around being that change that I want to see in the world. Your book speaks on very important work, unconscious bias in schools. Now, for our listeners who want to move forward here, What's a good way to start? Besides, I mean, they need to get your book, right? They need you to get you on the speaking platform. They need to invite you to their schools. But aside from that, where can they start? There's so many places to start with this. We often live, especially, you know, adults, and we don't have a lot of contact with folks who are racially aware um, and have conversations about race or racism. Often that we are in a place where we don't have to discuss the vestiges of racism in our everyday lives. And this is especially among and what I've learned from my white co-author and through research is that most white people don't talk about race hardly at all when they grow up through their families and even in their adult lives. So I think the first part for anybody, regardless of color, gender, race, background, is to want to acknowledge that race and racism is a factor in our society and also a factor in education. And so there are a lot of TED Talks, I mean, my TED Talk, but there are a lot of other TED Talks, Robin DiAngelo, Joy DeGroy, there's Eddie Moore, there's Glenn Singleton, there's Peggy McIntosh. Now, these are all individuals who have dedicated their lives to exploring race and racism. And a simple search on YouTube will pull up any one of their videos. And so even on a ride to work in the morning, you can put it on in your car, or if you take public transportation, put it on in your headphones, and just listen and learn and educate yourself. And then decide, all right, what is my role? Because the Howard Zinn quote, you can't be neutral on a moving train. The moving train is racism in our society. So you can't be neutral. So everyone needs to decide for themselves. 
what is our role in addressing racism in our society and then take action. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, tell us about a leader who inspires you. There's so many leaders, but one who has always inspired me ever since I met him, his name is David Lyons. You know, he's not a big popular figure that a lot of people know. If you go to Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, people know who he is because he was my mentor when I was going through my master's program. And I still try to really embody a lot of who he was because he was an incredibly calm and level-headed leader. You know, those of us who've led before know it can be extremely stressful and we can internalize a lot of the things that aren't going well at our schools very easily as a leader of that school. But he had a tremendous sense of perspective and humility, realizing that these are a lot of teachers, students, communities have their own desires and their own ways of thinking, and everyone is valid, and he can't answer everyone at every time. And he's inevitably going to do something wrong every single day, but he's doing the best thing he knows how. Mm. So he had immense wisdom. He was very calm, and he was very passionate. He was passionate about historically marginalized communities in a way where he lived his advocacy. Didn't just talk about it and read about it, but he lived it through schools and his actions. So David Lyons is a leader that I look up to and I try to emulate every day. And I can tell that because as soon as I saw you, you occurred as very calm to me. Your calm demeanor, level-headed, humility, passion, wisdom, all of those things are in play in your life as well. So I can see how that happened. Well, I try every day. Yeah, it's a journey. So, Tracy, what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, I looked at this question before, and it's interesting because we receive a lot of advice. You know, some of it unsolicited, (laughs) Um, some of it we seek out. But I do remember, I forget the name of the professor, which I I should remember her name. But it was the first course I took in undergrad that was specifically on racism. It was called Black Feminisms. And I was a junior, and I was in my major. And the first day of class, it wasn't so much a piece of advice. It was a question she posed to the class. And she says, as individuals who live in a community where we often don't pay enough attention to the historical oppression of peoples in our nation, you know, Native Americans, African Americans, uh, new immigrants and things of that sort, where we have a long legacy of racism and oppression, that we have to live it and do it in our everyday. If we are neutral, then we're complicit. And so she asked the question, she's like, would you rather live on your feet or die on your knees? And she pocketed that and she said, it's your choice, that there's no pressure here, but realize that if you choose to be complicit, it will continue to affect you if you're a person from the marginalized group. And so that's what it means about dying on your knees. But living on your feet is something where you have to take action and advocate. And it's going to be a rough, rough road because it never gets any easier regardless of how old you get or how much prestige you get. But you have to decide to live on your feet or die on your knees. I've chosen my life path to live on my feet the best way I know how. And I'm glad you kind of elaborated more on that because it's perspective. When you ask that question, some people would say, I'd rather die on my knees because they're thinking differently. They're yeah, thinking what, prayer. They're thinking, it depends on where they come from. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm glad she contextualized it that way. And she used that quote in order to bring us into our complicity and that by being complicit, you are understanding that. I mean, in terms of surrendering. So. Right. I think that's the way in which she meant it. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Thank you. Now, when you think of leadership today, what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? I'm very hopeful about the Obama generation. The students who are in school right now, so my son, he's going to be 18, oh my gosh, in about three weeks. But he is of a generation that is, for the majority of his life, he's known a Black president. And his perspective on race and the way in which our society functions and what is possible is markedly different than where I was. I grew up with Ronald Reagan and 
and Bill Clinton. So I never knew a black president or never even had any aspirations of ever seeing one in my lifetime. And mm -hmm. so my perspective on race is a lot different than his now. He has a different sense of what's possible and he has a different rhetoric in terms of what the conversation our country was having before. And so my hope is that this generation, those eight years, those who were in their formative years of learning about the presidency, having national conversations about race in a different way than we had before in our country, are gonna bring our society to a new level of consciousness, awareness, and action. Mm -hmm. And so that also pairs with my concern right now is that there's a lack of attention, especially in education, and the role of racism, structural racism, what we call our book, Unconscious Racial Bias, but basically what we're talking about is structural racism, the way in which we talk about these gaps in achievement, the achievement gap or the school to prison pipeline, as if these mm. are things that are sort of natural occurrences among black and brown populations, which is not true. It's actually the schools that produce these outcomes within schools, but there's not enough conversation and changing of perspective to realize that it's actually the racism within our schools that's producing these outcomes. And so that's my biggest concern right now, but I think we're shifting the conversation with the number of you know, academics that I mentioned before, but also with our book, shifting the agency to make change to the school and the system rather than attaching these deficit perspectives on students and communities. Mm -hmm. That's great information, and it gives us a lot to really reflect on. So we need to make sure we get that book, Unconscious Bias in Schools. Thank you again. I want to tell you something real quick. My son was a little one. He was about four or five years old when I went to vote, and I took him in with me, and both of us, we voted for Obama. You know, we watched the election in Jordan was my son. He had been sleeping. And the next morning, Jordan, who was so excited and so happy. And this boy walked down the stairs as if he had caused the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. He oh, was so happy. Oh, like, yes, I elected him. <laughs> it was so that's delicious. Great. All right. So tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life. Again, there's a lot of challenges in terms of leadership. And I was thinking through this question and I realized that it's a story that I tell when I go on, you know, my book tours, and I talk about my motivations for writing this book and pursuing research around racism. And there's a seminal experience that happened to me, a number of experiences, but this one sticks out the most. It's a story that I still tell. It was when I was in the fifth grade. I was in the fifth grade and I was a part of what was called the 220 program. It's a program where the school district would bus poor black and brown students from the city of Milwaukee to the suburbs to integrate the suburbs. And so myself and my five brothers and sisters were all bused out from Milwaukee proper to a uh, suburb called Brown Deer to attend this predominantly white school for purposes of integration. And so being one of very few black kids, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't look like the other kids there. And also I wasn't from the same socioeconomic background as these kids. But there was a situation in the fifth grade where I was coming out of art class and our art supplies were required to be in a gallon milk container. So we had to cut off the tops and all of our art supplies were put in there. And so I was coming out of art class and I saw one of my friends, Alex, who was also on my bus. He was a little white kid, but he was poor. So he qualified and he was standing in his locker. And we had this game that we played with each other where we would you know, try our best when we saw each other at our locker that we would try to tap each other's shoulder. And then when we turned around, we'd shut each other's locker. You know, we'd, try, we'd have this game that was ongoing between us. And it was a friendly game. And so I was coming out of art class and I saw him at his locker. And so I snuck up behind him, tapped his shoulder. And as he turned around, I reached my hand around and shut his locker. You know? And mm -hmm. of course, I laughed. He didn't laugh so much because I got him, but we knew this was a game that we played. And so I was walking off to class and I wasn't more than a few feet past Alex at that point. 
a teacher, Mr. Evans, I still remember his name, came up behind me and snatched my art supplies out of my hand. You know, gave me a really, I don't even know how to describe his gaze, but it was like a, uh, an evil gaze. Took my art supplies, looked me in the eye and dumped them right in the middle of the hallway. Threw my carton down and walked away. And then he said, how does it feel? Hmm. And so being a child who didn't get in trouble at all at school, because my mom was very strict there, <laughs> parents are educators, do not get in trouble at school, hmm. I was stunned. But I picked up my art supplies quietly, put them back in my gallon container and kept on walking down the hallway. I didn't get mad, didn't get angry, didn't talk back because that's not how I was raised. And so as I was almost in my classroom, Mr. Evans then comes back and puts his arm around my shoulder and tries to explain to me why he did what he did. And I was stunned. I didn't want to hear his explanation. So I took his arm and I pushed it off of it. Mm-hmm. He then whipped around with the angry finger in my face with the same gaze he had before. And he said in my face, do you want to start with me? Mm. And I said, no, I don't even know what to start with me. I was like, no, I don't want. And then he turns around and walks away. After that, I didn't tell my mom about it, of course, because you know, I would have been in trouble for you know, playing with Alice in the hallway. But it stunned me so much, and I didn't understand why he had such an extreme response to me for what it seemed like a simple action. But I was talking to my Black friends about this, and they said, you know, we're treated like this, you know, the older kids, we're treated like this all the time in these schools, that these white teachers don't like it that we're here. And if you watch, you'll see that we're not in any of the AP classes. We're not in any of the gifted classes. And when we get in trouble, they're more likely to suspend us. And so after that moment, I started realizing that regardless of how good you were as a kid of color in that school, we were treated differently. And this was a very seminal defining moment where I feel like I had my racial awakening. That racism is alive and it's at play every day in a school building and it preferences white people and it creates real detriments for black and brown people. And so that's the moment where I had my awakening. And then as I, you know, worked my way through school and began to come into my professional life, I realized I don't want children in schools that I teach and I lead in districts that I'm affiliated with to ever have that same experience, not just once, but ever throughout their educational experience. Hmm. Wow. And that certainly has paved the way for the important work that you do. Now for the listeners who don't, get what unconscious bias is? Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's not simple, but it's simple in terms of definition. It's the preferencing of a certain racial group over another, or the lack of preference for a certain racial group. And so what it looks like is, typically in our society, considering our racial history, is that white is the preferred cultural and racial group in our society, just because of our history of racism in our country, and just to pocket our history so that we sort of have it at top of mind. That last year, 2019, the 400th year anniversary of the transatlantic slave trade. So from 1619 until 1865, 246 years, that's when slavery occurred. Right? And remember, at this time was a time where black people were subject to conditions that we couldn't even subject to dogs to today. Mm-hmm. Right? We could, you know, whites could murder, trade, rape, torture black people with no recourse for 246 years. Even after 1865, after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were still legalized Jim Crow segregation for another 89 years. So for this time, for 335 years of our history, black and brown people were subjugated to the white population, legally. Mm-hmm. And even if we count 1965 as the end of legalized oppression, the civil rights movement, if we count that as the end of it, from 1965 until today is 56 years. 
So 56 years opposed to 335 years of oppression is just a drop in the bucket, right? right? Right. And so what I want us to understand is that unconscious bias or racial biases in our society is a residual of that time. It still lives in the mind, hearts, and thoughts of the American people. And so you can see this in every aspect of our society. You can see it in private business and policing. You can see it even in medicine. We talk about these aspects in our books about biases existing there. And of course, also in education. And so mm-hmm. these biases are intrinsic to who we are right now as a society. And unless we purposefully work our way on addressing that and addressing the impacts of these biases on black and brown and historically marginalized populations, we're not going to be able to move forward. Right. And we need to personally wake up because, I mean, you can look at society as a whole, but then what's my responsibility here and and move in that direction because it can remain unconscious. It takes intentionality and it's important that we do this. So thank you so much for this. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Want to make your voice stand out to prospective employers, clients, or partners? You don't have to be well-known to be a guest on Master Your Swag podcast. In fact, we provide you with all the tools you'll need to be featured and be ready to get noticed. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot on Master Your Swag podcast. So Tracy, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? It's the book. The book was a a long time coming. I had always known that I wanted to increase my influence in the realm of education. And my wife had told me when I was an AP and a a principal that I approached bias differently than any other leader that she knew. And so the way in which I approach addressing vestiges of racial bias is through data analysis. Um, And a lot of people, you know, especially leaders, a lot of people are turned off by data in education. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much data. I have to comb through this and create a strategy and a plan. And the way in which I address racial bias is through micro data. So very specific data. If there's a difference in racial outcomes, whether it's academics, whether it's achievement, whether it's discipline, whether it's positive behavior support, these are all areas where there can be gaps and differences. We have to, one, investigate how deep the difference is and then look for the area so that we can implement an initiative to make that change. And so practicing this for you know, six years in administration, and then, you know, wanting to then increase my influence, I poured all of my time, energy, and knowledge that I had, and also brought together research to produce this book. And I'm very proud and happy that I've been able to capture that in this book, and then also partner with school district and educational organizations that have made a commitment to at least trying to understand racial bias and how to mitigate it, partnering with them to push them towards growing and developing in a way that lifts the systemic oppression off students of color. Mm. Anyone who's in the work, who's doing the work, you know, anyone listening to this podcast that's in the work, please feel free to reach out because the community is small Mm -hmm. and it's tough work. So I really enjoy connecting with folks who are in this type of work. And I want to share something with you. I have a program that I have in schools and I'm trying to get it out to more schools. Essentially, it's this podcast, but students are doing it. Mm. So it's really cool. It's called Master Leadership at Schools Podcast Program. But I have to tell you, there was one student who was interviewing a leader in Long Island, in New York. And as progressive as New York seems to be, we have a long way to go. But anyway, he's a white male who is well known, has retired, and he came back to lead in the school district as an interim principal. And this is what he tells the student who was interviewing him. 
he says, well, you know, most of my students are black, but they're really great people. Oh, no. Tracy. And he didn't have the, like, we're recording this, dude. This student who was interviewing him said, okay. And this guy continued to go on about how great the students were. Mm -hmm. And I had to think about what's my purpose here? My purpose is to add value to people. This is not going to add value to anybody. But this is what happens. They keep recycling the same leaders and we keep having the same problems. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Lily, this happens to me all the time. It's unreal. I think it's truly unconscious bias. It's so deeply ingrained in the way I truly think mm -hmm. that it just comes out. And unless you're listening and, and you have some sort of racial awareness, you won't realize that, so what I heard him say, I think black and brown people, there's something inherently not good about them, but they're black, but right. they're still good people. Right. You know? <laughs> that yeah. little word. Mm -hmm. It's like he was completely unaware yeah. and he's thinking that he's saying great things. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, that unconscious bias. We have a long way to go, but these <laughs> conversations are important. So Tracy, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? That's such a catchphrase, right? I'm a lifelong learner. I think that's true, like just in a general sense. If you stopped learning at any age, I mean, I think you would be not one, not be able to keep up with technology or the latest trends. I think we're all like in a general sense, lifelong learners. Now in terms of like being a deliberate lifelong learner, I think it's another thing. We often get very good at what we learn to do well. And we often don't take on things that we don't know how to do well. Um, because it's uncomfortable. And why would we want to be uncomfortable when we can do things that we love and do well and enjoy doing? And so, I mean, this is very much tied to my work. I am learning more from white people in that when I was a leader in a school, I read mostly books who were written by people of color. You know, and I think it's fantastic. I read Du Bois, I read Eddie Moore, I read Glenn Singleton, and these are all leaders of color who lead for racial equity. And I operated in a way that I only learned from people who were like me. Now, what I knew was missing at the time and why I continued to sort of learn from white people is I did not understand the white perspective on race. Because what was happening is when we'd have conversations in our schools, and I didn't lead them. We hired an organization called Multicultural Bridge to be our consultants around racial equity in our school building. Is what I would notice is during these conversations, especially in um, multiracial groups, is that a lot of white people were just silent because they felt intimidated by the forum in talking about race. So as a person of color, I never really got to learn from white people and their perspective on race, racism, things of that sort. And so when I got to my doctoral program at Harvard, I intentionally started reading white academics. And that's when I got into more Peggy McIntosh. And I started reading Joe Fegan, writes a book called The White Racial Frame. And this gave me a really deep insight about what he calls and what others call the racial illiteracy of white people. I assumed that, you know, before I assumed that, you know, most white folks understood at least the basic nuances of racism, that, you know, segregation, you know, residential segregation, interpersonal racism, how to pick it out, um, that they are sort of passive observers. But what I come to realize is that unless you're raised and taught the ways to recognize structural and interpersonal racism, you're actually illiterate. And so through reading Joe Fegan's White Racial Frame and Micah Pollock's Color Mute, I understand more and I have more empathy for white people in understanding their sort of journey in racial awakening along the way. And so that's what I do to be a intentional lifelong learner in my work. Great. Thank you. Now, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well and why? 
of course, these are all in the realm of my work around racism. And so I already mentioned a Joe Fegan's White Racial Frame. Excellent book. It's kind of dense because he's a sociologist, but it's a good read. Micah Pollock, her color mute, was another book about race, racism, and the inability to talk about race in a way that we can get by. And then the most influential book that I read recently is Carol Anderson's White Rage. And this is a, a sort of a direct book about the backlash from the Obama presidency that we're seeing now but she puts it in a way that connects us to our historical oppression of people of color and that the backlash, every time there's black or brown progress, there's always white backlash. And how do we mitigate that? So that's a very timely and interesting yes. book. And of course, my book, Unconscious Racial Bias in Schools, yes. <laughs> I read it, but I also wrote it. In terms of films, Schooling the World, a film was made, uh, I think, over a decade ago. I won't spoil it. Um, it's okay. available free on YouTube called Schooling the World tremendous lesson in Western education and the purpose of that. And I think it really informed my leadership when I showed it to my faculty and we talked deeply about our philosophy around schooling. And then the last thing in terms of listening, Sugata Mitra, he has this TED talk that's called School in the Clouds. It's a 15 minute talk and it really makes us think deeply about the purpose of education. Like what is our philosophy of education? What is our philosophy of schooling? And so these things that I've mentioned all are in the same realm of how do we rethink education in a way to liberate our society? Not just people of color, because racism is bad for white populations also, in a way that it gives a sort of this false idea of meritocracy, that unless you really understand the depth of structural racism, you know, if you're white and you don't talk about racism, you really think our society is a meritocracy, and you unintentionally perpetuate racism because you don't understand how it's worked its way into our systems. And so these books and films in Sugata Mitra's TED Talk, I think, bring a lens to really rethinking our role in liberatory education. Perfect. I almost think I know the answer to this, but let me ask, if there was something you could change in education, what would that be? You know what? It's interesting. I think there are two things. Yeah, first, more attention to racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want that to be the top agenda item for our country as a whole that these achievement gaps that, as we call it, have been around for as long as education has been around. And it's a gap in service, a gap in belief, a gap in the way in which we treat our students. And it's based in race. And so I want more of an intentional focus around racism. Then we can name it, and then we can address it. But also, I want us to also think about, and this is sort of the philosophical part, is how do we rethink learning and schooling. We use learning and schooling sort of synonymous together, that learning happens in school and schooling, hence by nature, is learning. But we know through research and through the way in which we understand people learn is that actually locking students up in a school building for eight hours a day and then testing them and over-testing them, assigning them grades and things of that sort is not the best way that students learn. And we have so much access to far more technology, to flexibility in terms of our transportation, to a whole host of other media where students can learn, children can learn, that schooling is antiquated. And so I watched my son, you know, I feel like my parents now, because I remember having to teach my parents how to use a VCR <laughs> when they first right. came out right. back in the day. And my son right now uh, has to teach me how to use different apps, teach me how to use our smart television, which I don't know how to use, and can figure out if he doesn't know something, I see the way he learns. And he doesn't learn by going to a classroom and sitting and asking these questions. He goes to the internet and you reads a number, of, a, yeah, a number of sources to learn what he needs to learn. Right. And he has much more, when there's a task and something he wants to learn, I see how he learns. And it's not in a classroom. 
And so I want us to really rethink uh, what learning is and separate that from our antiquated system of schooling. You know, Tracy, this is so timely. You're hitting on two major points that are showing up in our society in a big way. Thank you. Tracy, you have a lot of responsibilities. A lot of your work is social, emotional, humility, leadership, really difficult work, but really important work. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for that? I think that's something I've been doing. I don't know where I got it from. I think I observed my either my mother or my father, because they're educators. My dad in special education, he would have some wild stories. And my mom was a middle school counselor. They were so underfunded that she had five schools. And it's the hardest grade. Right. In my opinion. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Developmentally, you know, hormonally, toughest time, right? And so she did this for over 30 years. And what I would observe from them is that they made a practice of having really quiet mornings. That our mornings would start in a very deliberately quiet, you know, dim lines. We'd have a hot breakfast, wake up with plenty of time to gather ourselves before us as kids, we went off to school. But my parents also deliberately had a quiet and preparing their mind for the day. And I still followed that routine as a principal. I'd wake up a good hour and a half before I had to leave the house to have a very slow and deliberate morning, watch my sports center, cook my breakfast, have my tea, you know, really and not check any email or anything like that to set my mind for the day. Because as soon as you go, the fire hose is on and you're running. That's right. Um, and then also something that my wife taught me more recently is this practice of giving daily gratitude. Mm-hmm. And it's gratitude for everything, for you know, our family, gratitude for our home, gratitude that we have you know, a decent income, but not just that, but also gratitude for struggle. Mm-hmm. That um, as we express gratitude, so, oh my gosh, I have to go observe that teacher that's on an action plan. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. because it helps me be a better leader to have this difficulty and learn how to address this particular issue in a way that's productive. And so not just expressing gratitude for things that are going right, but also expressing gratitude for things that are going wrong, mm-hmm. um, that we perceive as wrong. Because she read a book, I forget what the book was, but it says that when you express gratitude, especially for things that are difficult and change it in your mind to be I'm thankful for this struggle because I can learn from it. It really changed your sort of physiology and your emotional well-being towards what is stress and how to change it around to be in a more positive mindset. Yeah, it's like that Wayne Dyer quote, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tracy. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? (laughs) Don't do it. No, I I wouldn't say that. (laughs) I would say do it. And I also, you know, express this to the aspiring leaders that I coach in their internships and also in my classes is try your best to allow yourself to be a public learner because there's such a pull. And I remember this vividly when I was an AP, when I was a principal. Again, I I attribute it to age, but also to experience and not having as much guidance as I feel that I needed as a new leader that I have the right to be a public learner. As leaders, we do not know everything going into the job. Yes, we have a particular skill set. We are hired based on that skill set. And we still have a good percentage of things that we don't know how to do sort of right. And there's a lot of personalities and preferences among adults that, you know, we have to get to know their personalities and preferences, how to sort of support adults in different ways, how to support students. And we have to be able to learn and admit our mistakes. And one, criticism and feedback is great. And at the same time, we need to own and I would express this to myself, be a public learner 
admit mm-hmm. when you don't know things. And when you don't get things right, you can apologize and move on. You know, it's right. not the end of the world. And then the second thing I would say is to myself, I'd be like, you know, Tracy, don't take things personally. And I think that is Achilles heel mm-hmm. of any leader is taking things personally. That we always have to separate ourselves in our roles as leaders and then ourselves as a person. And I tell my students, as a person, you're fantastic. You are great. You are the most excellent person you can be. Now, you as a leader, <laughs> you're not so good. <laughs> right. You are going to be a novice going into that leadership position, and you need to learn. Now, don't take it personally as you as a person, but you as a leader has a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And so we have to try our best. And this is not perfect. It's nowhere near easy. But we have to try our best to understand that the feedback that we get as far as our leadership, that they're giving feedback on our role of us playing a leader mm-hmm. and keep it in that realm and take it with gratitude and then you know, try to make improvements. But the more personally you take it, the more stress it creates and the more animosity we have for those who give it. And so right. really try to, I want to say this back to myself, Tracy, don't take things personally. <laughs> and it's ongoing work. It's something, you know, that we need to remind ourselves of all the time and that's okay. You know? Yes. And, and it is okay. It is okay to experience emotion when you receive feedback. Mm-hmm. But it's not okay to then develop animosity right. uh, towards the person giving it. We always must express gratitude. Yes. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I'd like to sort of express my thanks to you for having me on your podcast. I really believe that there are podcasts like this that are accessible, that are timely, that help leaders improve our practice. And then I like to, again, talk about your listeners consider my book. This is not just for leaders who work in schools with black and brown kids. This is also for leaders, I think even more so that work in all white schools, mm-hmm. that these are places where actually the majority of our students are educated in predominantly white schools. And in order to make our society a better place, we must talk about race and racism with teachers and also with students so that we can have a racially literate society. And so our book is about one diverse school that are racially diverse, but also it talks about strategies for being brave, color brave, and talking about aspects of race with students and with teachers in schools that are predominantly white. Now, do you do workshops as well? I do. I work with school districts. And so right now I'm working with a few school districts around the tenets of the book of unconscious racial bias, but I also work with education-based organizations. And currently I have several policy-based organizations that are in the process of considering their role in Mm -hmm. addressing racism in schools. So how do you write progressive policy then inform what schools can do? And so, yes, I work directly with school districts and also with school-based organizations who are considering addressing racial bias in schools. And how can our listeners get in contact with you? I have my own website, tracyabenson.com, T-R-A-C-E-Y-A-B-E-N-S-O-N.com. You can also Google search me. I'm at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Pretty easy to find. And then, of course, I have my TED Talk. I have my book. But I'm accessible via email. I return email. So but the best place, the most easy place to contact me is through my website. Perfect. Tracy, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate you taking time for us to have this conversation. And thank you to the listeners for listening. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.